0: go but thank you so much and we'll talk to you again next week thank you jason thank you listeners
1: Ground control to okay
0: well that's going to do it for the local edition we've got trailer talkers, Breen sabrina artel coming right up this is wjff jeffersonville public radio for the catskills northeast pennsylvania we are keeping you connected Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am so excited to be speaking with Jamie Helper about
2: the world of plants, her world of plants, and the journey that it has taken her on. I was introduced to Jamie at the farmer's markets in my neighborhood of Sullivan County, Catskills, where Jamie also lives. And I would see her at her booth, surrounded by plants that she had grown, that she was sharing information about, and by her handmade herbal skin products. and. I've always wanted to speak to Jamie about this part of herself and how she really uh, relates and has gained this kind of knowledge with the plant world and and this journey that it's taking, taking her on. Welcome to Trailer Talk, Jamie. Thank you. You're it's so- nice to be here. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me and for having this conversation. So Jamie, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, My name is Jamie
1: Helper. I live in Sullivan County. It's in Western New York in the Catskill region. I came here from Jersey City, from Brooklyn, from Connecticut, from Chicago. So until I came here, I lived in cities all the time and I just needed a place to grow figuratively and literally. And so I ended up in the Catskills. I've been here for about 16 years raising my children and growing plants
2: and such. So Jamie, so from the big cities, you mentioned Jersey City, Brooklyn, Connecticut, Chicago, to this rural community of Sullivan County, New York. And how would you say then this evolved for you, your relationship with nature, with the plant world, and the knowledge that you've been sharing with community members? I think I'm
1: really got close to nature and my desire to be in it when I was in Brooklyn. After college, I moved to Brooklyn and I lived around the corner from the library. And outside of working, I, you know, I had some time on my hands and I just spent lots of time at the library. I would take out all kinds of books and I took out some books on herbs and I became fascinated. And I had a a few little health problems, nothing major, but I didn't really like the way that the doctors were addressing me or the problems. So it really became about control for me. I -hmm. knew that there were ways that I could um, control my health and my happiness and my life. And they really revolved around plants, either eating them or using them for various teas and concoctions and I would experiment on my friends if anyone was sick I would tell them to come over to my house and I'd take out a book and (laughs) and they were very willing participants and over time I just it was it was powerful you know it the knowledge that reading about the plants imparted and experimenting with the plants that I would buy from various shops in Brooklyn. There were lots of little herb shops where there'd be all these jars on the walls with all these different kind of plants. And I always
2: want... Yeah. <laughs> my, my Hi, cat. <laughs> kitty. What's your cat's name? Her name is Asada. Asada. Well, welcome to Trailer Talk.
1: Oh, I don't know if she's going to stop talking. I'm sorry, but um, she's okay. very local. Anyway, so the herbs were... I was just instantly intrigued and they were very powerful to me. It wasn't something I studied in college, but I started studying them very seriously on my own after college and just doing a lot of reading. And then I, um, when I got a little older and I had children, I, you know, I wanted to be able to use herbs for my kids too. And, you know, you're especially your first child, you're so particular about what goes, Uh in them and on them. And I wasn't satisfied with any of the products that were available for children. And I wanted to use, at this time, I couldn't find products that were made with herbs. Most Mm. And when was this? This was um, my first child was born in 1999 and you would see plenty of products that included essential oils, but not the whole herbs themselves. And my experience and my philosophy had always been that there was um a certain kind of natural balance and intelligence about a whole plant as opposed to an extract. You know, drugs were extracts of herbs and then sometimes in some cases, synthesized versions of herbs. So I wanted to get back to the whole herb. So I started experimenting myself with um, skincare products made with whole herbs, mostly for my children but, you know, when I do something, I kind of go all in. So I had so many supplies and so many products, and I would just give them to friends and family.
2: And people started asking for more. Is this when you you started Heirloom Botanicals, or was that when you moved to the Catskills of New York?
1: No, I was still in Brooklyn and okay. then in Jersey City. And I started heirloom botanicals, but not officially, I was still just making products for myself and my family, and um, friends. And then as the demand grew, and also during this time, when I was having children, I wasn't working, but I needed, you know, means to make money. So I always had side hustles, I would cook
2: Mm -hmm. vegan
1: food or vegan cakes and all kinds of things. And when people started being interested in my skincare products, then I started selling those too. And that's when it really grew for me. And- I
2: see. So that's when it really grew. And is that when your desire to get into the country, in, into a yes. rural community? Okay. So the plants, would you say the plants led you there? The plants and people.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to get closer to plants and further away from people.
2: that's, that's well said. You wanted to get closer to plants and further away from people. When you think back to that time, so you were saying you had your first child in 1999 and you had already begun experimenting with plants and then that really accelerated when you had your first child. Is there a particular plant or something when you think back about that time that somehow was part of the guiding of you into a deeper relationship with the plant world?
1: Yes. Um, I think at the time with the kids, it was always chamomile. Chamomile, you know, was just this wonderful herb that could do so many different things and it tasted good. And it was tonifying. It was mild enough to use on a regular basis, but also powerful enough to help you when you were in distress. And for me, not just the herbs, but I, I wanted to know the plants better and buying these dry, desiccated herbs that someone else had cultivated didn't do it for me. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get close to the plants in a way that I was interested in plants that I could cultivate myself, plants that were easy to grow in this environment and plants that I could wildcraft. Because I felt like the plants that grew closest to you that thrived in the same environment that you thrived in were most likely to be beneficial. So, my probably my best plant friend is lemon balm.
2: Mm. I have
1: a lot of that
2: that grows around me in the summer months.
1: It's hard to get rid of. I actually, the lemon balm that's in my garden now came from Jersey City, and Mm -hmm. I've had it for decades. And it's always been here since I've brought it here and it spreads and
2: it comes back and it, it has beautiful little white flowers, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I love to cut it in the summer and put it in a vase on my kitchen yeah. table. It just smells so good.
1: And the pollinators love it. It's a really good plant. It's a particularly good for me. And I feel like it, it's, it's tonifying for just one, about everybody. It's good for, it's a nerve tonic. And it just about everybody has issues <laughs> with anxiety yes. and and nervous tension. It It's beneficial for sleep and it's an antiviral. So it's one of those plants that, and it tastes amazing. Yes. So I use it year round, particularly though, if I were ever feeling a little, down either physically or mentally, and it's also nice to bathe in. It's it's lemon balm is definitely my favorite herb, hmm. but as I've been here, I've become acquainted with other herbs that I I love almost as much, like elderflower and elderberries. Oh
0: yes, yes, I,
1: you know they are really good friends, actually lemon balm and elderberry tea together are very nice, especially during cold and flu season. And they're also very good for your skin. So, you know, back to the herbal products, I would make really strong herbal teas and blend them into my um, creams and such. And I I don't know, I just, I like herbs that you can use without fear of um, harm. Because just because it's natural and it's an herb doesn't mean that it doesn't have the power to, you know, be used in a way that causes distress. So I like tonifying herbs, but they're also potentially, you know, powerful enough to help you heal. Elderflower, elderberry, lemon balm, chamomile is super easy to grow. Once you have it, you likely have it forever. And, and mint, of course,
2: mint. You're bringing up so many important points. You're mentioning your connection with tonifying herbs, but also just because it's an herb doesn't mean that it's safe, but the kinds that you like to work with and also this idea of the whole plant that there's, there's a power innate in that and a kind of balance that when things are pulled out or separated, that, that changes literally the recipe of it and the impact. Yes. Yes. So these and are the just, safety. And the safety. I'm wondering if you can share with us also where you work, the Center for Discovery, what the center is. Well, um, through my works at the farmer's market, I met lots of people, and there
1: had been this position available at the Center for Discovery. And um, they reached out to me because they thought it might be a good position for me. And as it turns out, it's been wonderful. It's pretty much doing what I had been doing on my own with the, um, but not on my own, you know, there, there's an element to what they do there that just expanded the reach and the purpose of what I was doing. The center for discovery. Oh, wow. It's so much. I don't really even know how to, how, how would you describe it? I would describe it as I don't like the word institution because it's not an institution, but it's a, It's a place. Educational center. Well, it's not just as it's residential and educational. We have adults and children and we serve our clients, our um, adults and children, mainly with autism spectrum disorder or some other medical frailties Mm -hmm. and um, intellectual disabilities. And what we do is we're a farm-based organization. So everything centers around this big biodynamic organic farm that, uh, we run. Mm -hmm. And so all of our programs, our educational programs, our adult day programs have some element of farming and connection with nature. And there's a lot of focus on feeding your body in a way that encourages health and healing and, so what I do there is we have these gardens, um, they're healing gardens. So we grow all kinds of medical, medicinal and culinary herbs. We grow them throughout the season and then we harvest them and we bring them into our over workshop where we dehydrate them and we process them into teas and different herbs and spices that the center then uses and distributes to our houses. So mm. we have this philosophy where we go from seed to belly. So we nourish that plant from seed to the point that it's going to be food for ourselves and for our residents and for the the children that come there to school. We have community children that come to school there, but we also have children who live on campus there. Mm-hmm. And it's a really dynamic place. And I've learned so much working with with the individuals um, in our care. And I was also learned a lot about, I've gotten more acquainted with some of the plants that I oh. love. I, I have to say that my work at the Center for Discovery, it was my first experience working closely with individuals with autism spectrum disorder and um, other intellectual disabilities. And what we see, what's presented to us you know in mainstream media and just in general what's presented to us Mm -hmm. and what ideas we might have about the population that I work with is just so small Mm -hmm. so small compared to first of all not only have I learned so much about these individuals most importantly what I've learned has been from the direct care workers that I work with that work with these individuals the depth of compassion and love and care that's exhibited is amazing. The individuals we work with are amazing. You know, I don't even like to use the word disability because they have capabilities beyond most other humans. I know mainly for compassion and caring, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's,
2: uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Yes. And, and what are you learning about the, the impact and the potential of plants of this world that you had already been gaining so much knowledge and, and had already immersed yourself in, but what perhaps has surprised you in what you've been learning in this context at the Center for Discovery?
1: I think I always thought about my relationship with plants as being personal Mm. and presenting the plants to people for therapeutic use, but I never really thought about how therapeutic the process of interacting with those plants is for everyone, not just drinking the tea, but growing the plant and touching the plant and watching the plant develop and working with it and engaging all of your senses in cultivating those plants and, and the work, just, just the work, just watching people be transformed by working with plants, never even having to ingest them, but still being touched by their presence,
2: you know? Oh, yes, I was about to say by by their presence that it's something I've always had a connection to since I can remember, but living surrounded by nature in, in such a large way in the Catskills, has taught me so much about my relationship with the natural world, with the plant world, with the world of wild beings.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. And there's different levels of awareness, you know, with different individuals. But, you know, there are times when, you know, like right now we're in the greenhouse and we're starting seeds you know, there are some people that I will be with from the beginning to the end. And, you know, we discount so many things and we don't understand the impact of them until someone comes back to you when you're having a glass of chamomile tea and they tell you, I remember planting these seeds.
0: So the whole, the life
2: cycle. Yeah. And and you mentioned this by engaging in the plant world, there's a, a transformative potential.
1: And Also growing plants from seed. For me, you know, sometimes you can just have a day or a life or a week or a month or whatever, where you just don't feel like you're getting anything done. But when you plant a seed and a few weeks from now, you see a little bit of green sprouting and then you get it in the ground and a few months from now, there is a harvestable flower. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fulfilling. It's fulfilling in a way that, you know,
2: that nothing else is. And so Jamie, in connecting so deeply and increasing your own relationship with the plant world, what is this journey? Like, where are you on this journey at this point? How would you describe kind of where, where it's taking you into yourself and into how you're perhaps relating to the world around you?
1: Well, I think, um, especially these last couple years where we've all been a little bit isolated to say mm-hmm. the least, <laughs> it's given me purpose in times when it's been lonely, you know, it's, it's given mm-hmm. me, um, like I said, something that I can look to and see accomplishment. It's kept me outside. It keeps my body moving it keeps me motivated, you know, when maybe other things aren't going so great. And it reminds me that I do have the power to control something positive. It helps me reconnect with my creative energy. You know, um, sometimes when I'm stuck creatively, because I write as well. Sometimes when I'm stuck creatively, I can go outside, and I can um, be reminded of like, the ultimate creative energy mm. and tap into that and move forward. You know, it's, it's affected my writing, you know, it, it affects my metaphors,
2: you know, it, um, it affects your metaphors. Yes. And that in and of itself is a metaphor, right? <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of these metaphors, so it's taking you, your, your relationship with the plant world. Uh, And can we say the natural world when we say the plant world? So this natural world that I feel so fortunate to be so deeply immersed in where, where I live in the Catskills, is that also taking you into a place of a rediscovery of parts of yourself, would you say? Absolutely.
1: Because um, like with the reading back in Brooklyn and even now, it's, and even my escape here it's a way of retreating i'm a little bit reclusive and a little shy about some things but i write music and um there came a point in time when i used to do it a lot and then i don't know i just kind of shrunk and i did not want to be a part of the world so much but when i'm connecting through plants i can reintroduce myself in another kind of way it gives me um a little bit more, uh, confidence, you Mm -hmm. know, because these things I do, first of all, I can do them by myself. That was an issue with my skincare products. You know, you have to get all these ingredients from all around the world. All I need are seeds and Mm -hmm. I can go from a seed to this magnificent creation that could happen with or without me, but I'm able to affect it and play a part in it. And it, gave me the courage to go back and reexamine how I do that in my other creative endeavors. I, and I've been, been planting seeds.
2: You've been, <laughs> and, <laughs> you've been planting seeds. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if there's something you want to, I don't know, I guess, you know, we're coming towards the end of our conversation and I certainly hope we'll have more of these but that you want to share with our listeners, the things that you're mentioning are reminding me of, of these uh, relationships that we have that surround us and the potential for a certain kind of transformation. And you mentioned the senses, like when you think of plants, when you were talking to us about them, how they engage a multitude of our senses. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else you want to share. If it's one thing that um, I try to keep
1: with me, the lesson for me, especially at this stage in my life where my children are all getting older and they're all going to be leaving. It's just that, you know, it's the plants, they're always going to be here. And in some ways, so are we. And those things that we want to do that maybe we feel like time has, you know, kind of passed in such a way that it's no longer possible. That's not true. It's always possible. I've had plants that have been seemingly dead for a season. And then there's just a little bit of green. And with just a little bit of nurturing, I get a full grown, healthy plant again. And I think it's important to treat ourselves that way and treat the people in our lives that way as well. You know, to remember that we're all a part of creation as well. And we all have the capacity to, to grow, to change, to seemingly die back and,
2: you know, come again. Is there anything because of this time of the pandemic that we are living in that has resonated for you? I mean, I know you mentioned, of course, it's been a time of isolation for so many of us and being able to enter into the world of nature and plants has given you so much. Is there any other kind of revelation or discovery that you've made during this time? Yeah, it actually
1: made me (laughs) for the first time in a very long time, miss people. So I started, you know, to put myself back out there again and, you know, reconnect with other creative people and started doing other things. I love again, like making music and um recording music and
2: writing.
1: And DJing. Um, I, uh-huh. I know you've been involved <laughs> locally
2: with that when that was possible. Right. Right. So that, it- that happened right before the yes. pandemic.
1: And so I had to put that on hold, but I was able to do small you know, interactions with people that I know, and everyone was kind of grounded because of the pandemic. So I've been able to work with some really great creative people that otherwise might have been a little too busy for me. Uh
2: And also, I just want to share with our listeners that you also posted this joy filled video of yourself (laughs) ice skating to music on a pond. I mean, just recently, and there was something just so striking to me about that. Well, that was the culmination.
1: That's a song I wrote skating on the pond of a friend who I'd been, you know, having jam sessions with and just, you know, it's probably the most connection I've had creating with others, friends and, People who've been my friends forever, but we just never had the opportunity to share this kind of relationship. And the pandemic and other oh my gosh <laughs> just kind of made that possible.
2: And um, Kitty's back. Yeah, she likes attention. She. Oh, I'm I'm glad I mentioned that video because it really struck me. It came across social media, and uh, it just filled me with a kind of feeling of exuberance and that anything's possible, which you've certainly been sharing with us, have been some of the lessons that that you have gained from working with plants.
0: Well, thank
1: you. I'm glad that you were touched by it. I, I, was, I was a little nervous to put it out there, you know, little self-conscious, but you know what? I'm overcoming those fears and plants definitely help me in that regard.
2: Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for Speaking with me for taking your time and revealing some of your, uh, connect, some of your connections to the plant world. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Jamie Helper about plants, about her connection with plants. She has the Heirloom Botanicals Project, which is handmade herbal skin products. She, also works at the Center for Discovery where she is in the healing garden and working with individuals there. And she has been speaking to me about this world, this incredible world that if we are fortunate enough, we get to interact with and to deepen
0: our knowledge about. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell safe travels.
2: I'm Maria Rosa. This week on Latino USA, we travel back to the Dominican Republic to unpack the history of the Perejil Massacre and the consequences
3: that live on today. The DR, like many other post-dictatorial nations around the world and their citizens experience post-traumatic stress. That's
0: this week on Latino USA.
2: Friday afternoon at 2.00 on Radio Catskill.
3: Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Having your car towed is never a good feeling unless it means more public radio. Donate your unwanted car and help support this public radio station. Watch your car get towed away and feel
2: good about it.
0: Just go to wjffradio.org and click
2: Donate. Support public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. That's wjffradio.org. Thanks. You're listening to Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the
0: Catskills in Northeast
2: Pennsylvania.
0: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week.
2: I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. My guest is John Philip Hamilton, and we are going to be talking about his project, The Record Museum, and his portable gallery. There's a show that he's curated in my county of Sullivan County, New York in the Catskills at the Narrowsburg Union. And this is a portable gallery that John has taken to other places. And we're going to be talking about his concept behind this box, right? This, this portable gallery that travels and that contains records. LPs, albums, these are names that I grew up calling these incredible discs that play music and that are still a favorite of mine. So I want to welcome John Philip Hamilton to Trailer Talk. Hi, John.
3: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here at the uh, trailer.
2: Yes, thank you for joining me at this kitchen table. Because of Trailer Talk, I am very interested in the portable, the mobile, just like this kitchen table of Trailer Talk. Yes. <laughs> right? How did you come up with this idea of a portable gallery, of the Record Museum?
3: Like all good ideas, I was, I was at a bar with my friend Danny <laughs> and just coming up with ideas of what to do in uh, living in New York City. And um, the idea of uh, celebrating the art and the history of the Record album specifically was of strong interest to me but uh gallery space is uh very expensive in the city as as is everything so i was uh meditating on it and i was like well why don't i do something that's similar to as one might shop for records you could very well explore a gallery of art in a crate like a record and so musee dans une caisse was a phrase that came to mind from the french which means museum in a box and originally the idea was maybe to put together gallery, one crate called gallery one and a folding table and, uh, set up at some green markets in the city, possibly, or maybe around the corner from, uh, a great record store, or even there's some dudes that were out there. There was one gentleman on eighth and 23rd who sold records, uh, throughout the, uh, the aughts and the teens and just let people check it out and it would be the idea it would be rotating and it would be a different uh, theme but every time it would be something focused on the lp itself the cover the sleeve the record uh or something that extended from that.
2: I love this idea and I'm very connected to it because of my own project with trailer talk and it makes me think of other projects like the you know kind of traveling libraries and barber shops and and then other curators artists who are creating works that are more mobile or portable uh you mentioned the the man, you know, on, on the street over on, I think he said 8th Avenue in the city. I mean, I certainly had my favorite LP salespeople, you know, who would, who would spread out the blanket on the sidewalk or, or the table with LPs. And that is a really fun and social activity. And also one, as you mentioned, that contains history, right? Embedded within each album is a history. So, I'm wondering if you can share with us when you think of your first or your first handful of albums, like take us back there and to this this uh, kind of road that's led us to this moment of speaking about your record museum project.
3: Certainly. As a child of the seventies, I inherited my parents' forty five collection because they were adults they no longer were sitting around playing these singles they were listening to long play albums or whatever and so my introduction was through the 45s and hearing the girl groups or elvis or ray charles or uh, bill haley and uh from that that was i became fixated on the various uh designs of the uh, labels their logos and that always stuck with me and then of course just the uh again these 45s were all contained in carriers, little portable suitcases, if you will, to carry your records around. So maybe that just kind of informed everything right off the bat. And then um, throughout my childhood, there would be some significant purchases. A neighbor's kid got Magical Mystery Tour as a birthday gift. He hated it. I bought it off him. I loved it. The uh, oh, the me. early days in my teens, in the 80s, I would travel I, I, well, first of all, I grew up in a suburban hell called Brandon, Florida, outside of Tampa. And it was really a, 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 a giant nowhere. Uh, in fact, uh, Death Metal was the, it was the capital of Death Metal in the 80s. So Brandon, Florida. Brandon, <laughs> Florida. So it was really, there was like a major reaction to this total zero of a place. So we would drive to the outskirts of the county to go to these various record stores, one of which was Vinyl Fever. And there I relied upon older Salespeople who knew about jazz, knew about indie rock, knew about fusion, knew about uh, R&B, and they kind of helped inform my purchases, used records, of course. In the 90s, uh, after college, I moved to San Francisco and uh, really fell in love with the music scene there. And the record stores there were some of the um, most amazing of all, Rasputin in the East Bay and, of course, Amoeba Records.
2: Right. Oh, Amoeba. Uh, I still have my amoeba bag my canvas bag that yeah. I, I use for things
3: <laughs> and I and some of the best purchases of vinyl I ever did was in the uh, late 90s into the aughts when people were just chucking all their vinyl because the CDs had taken over and uh, they had more than they knew what to do with so I was purchasing albums for a dollar that you know should have been much more than that and really beefed up my collection.
2: Oh, it's, I love hearing this story. I mean, I am thinking about what records, what albums bring up for me. And they do take me immediately to my childhood, to as you described your parents not wanting their 45s and handing them down to you. I'm thinking of my older sister passing albums down to me and, and things like, uh, you know, like the Beatles revolution. And, um, I'm thinking like the stone sticky fingers or, mm. and I'm thinking of Barry Manilow of all things, receiving that as a birthday present when I was a girl, you know, and just kind of this mm. variety. And I had the, the special plastic covers for them and I made sure they were very straight in the cabinet so they wouldn't get warped. And you mentioned, of course, the cover art of the album of the label And just really having a whole universe of my reality was swirling in and around the records and the music that was coming from them. Are you finding that with your portable gallery, you know, your museum in a box that consists of what, about 20 to 25 albums?
3: I believe it's, yeah, 25 um, framed artifacts.
2: Framed artifacts. Are you finding that these stories are emerging from the people that are going to your shows?
3: To a certain extent. The interesting thing is both you and I were into probably records that had the artist's photos and their lyrics. But as you went further back uh, in you know, the 50s or 60s, um, there were things that they kept coming across that were the label trying to promote hi-fi or their own uh technology or informing the consumer how best to clean how to use your needle um and so i started focusing on the sleeve as this kind of promotional tool Mm. and that was Mm -hmm. the impetus for the first gallery show that that the museum has called the um wearing our label on our sleeve the incomplete history of uh, record promotion and so that helped inform uh, the history sort of kind of assembled as I started going through all these sleeves that predate, um, you know, the artist's uh, intent and control of the, the vinyl.
2: I see. So the show that you have have up now, Wearing Our Label on Our Sleeve an Incomplete History of Record Promotion, which is at the Narrowsburg Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Can you talk about that concept then? specifically and and how you curate the sleeves what's in the box
3: i will and but to answer your question real quick yes i think uh as people flip through there is a sense of memory and um and as they hit certain sleeves certain things would pop out i don't have any specific memories but uh, you could see certain people really dwelling over them or sharing something with Mm -hmm. their, their partner while standing there
2: and so, John, what about the concept? Have you come up with the portable exhibit? Uh,
3: so the once I had this idea, I started uh, just writing down ideas of of what to feature in the uh, the gallery uh how to how to execute it. And I would dwell over this and I would add to it over the years and then finally last year uh, in the summer of twenty nineteen. I was like, okay, I have to do this, I have the time, why not? And so the I built crates and I culled through uh, my entire collection for these different um, sl- paper sleeves that would feature uh, all the uh, promotional tools that the, the labels would use mm. uh, through the sleeve. And a narrative started to appear and it, it basically had a linear one in that in the early days, it was about promoting hi-fi. And then it was about celebrating the label as the best in, in, its, in its field. And then it became um, more focused on the um, stable of artists. And, um, and through that, the artists own uh, vanity labels. And then it uh, featured, uh, I figured out that they started uh, to do direct sales to The people buying these records because um, uh, they had a, a captured audience, and so there would be different ways that they would attempt to do this through humor or through lingo of the day that is a bit uh, corny now when you read these things and um, this is
2: so interesting what you 're sharing john so so I was thinking so much of the music and and the object of this this kind of this square record cover, and I wasn't really as aware as what you're sharing with us about these details of the cover art and the design that goes into the label and um, graphics and then the technologies and, and the historic aspects of the record itself. And how one played the record. So, you're you're kind of bringing up all these different things. So, what was your entrance into this idea and what you're well, wanting to share with your audience?
3: It was weird that I just arrived at promoting, going, uh, yeah. choosing the record sleeve, which is just a piece of paper to most people holding the, the piece of vinyl. Right. And just started focusing on that because I, I hope to do many more gallery shows featuring. More of the obvious uh, elements, such as cover artwork or mm-hmm. or uh, just it, other, you know other ideas, and so uh, I once I settled on uh, I came up with enough uh, representation uh, representational uh, artifacts. It just made sense to start with this and try to cobble together a narrative uh, of the record industry th- up and, up from the fifties to the eighties, uh, basically. And it was fun. It was fun to kind of uh, come up with an order in which to present uh, the various uh, sleeves without getting too dry or dull. I added a little humor to the gallery guide. I tried to punctuate the show with uh, the the Hot Lips Rolling Stones um, label um, that premiered in 1971. That was featured on their inner sleeves for the records that came out that year for the first time. Uh, Playboy actually had their own label. Um, for jazz and r and b and comedy and folk, and uh one of those sleeves are featured with their iconic image in a uh, wallpaper style and there's many others such as uh Casablanca and all these other smaller labels when their beautiful uh label Hi. artwork are also Hi. featured so there's a balance between this kind of um old fashioned uh technology talk and uh, more of the uh uh hipper uh zesty uh you know
0: uh, right.
2: images. And this narrative that you're talking about, that the narrative of the record industry that emerges as you're doing your research and and you're curating this portable gallery, the record museum, museum in a box, you know, um, what has emerged right now for you? What What is it that you're exploring?
3: Well, I think... Uh... There has been enough interest uh, in it that it, that it, it makes me feel very happy that I actually spent the time and effort to do it, yeah. um, and it's uh, propelling me to, to 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 move ahead with um, future gallery uh, ideas, and I have one for the new year now, um, and uh, it's a uh, you know it's more than just a gimmick because I mean the museum in the box is probably how I will continue to present. It, mm-hmm. but on the occasion that I can put these up on the wall and allow people time to observe it um that's wonderful too so I'll I'll take it way anyway. you can get it in that regards but I just still have the idea of being able to just just set up anywhere and just see who's interested and who gets into it and um as long as it's uh Received uh, by at least a handful of people, I I feel pretty good. Uh, Most people may think, "Oh, I'm I'm going record shopping." They're like, "No, this isn't records. This is uh, I don't know what this is." But uh, so it's actually
2: uh... right, right. So it's it's not going record shopping, and in some ways, it's mimicking that feeling of what that was like or what that is like for people who are collecting vinyl. But you're actually going deeply into the sleeves and the art and different labels. So for this exhibit that, that is in, in my neighborhood in the Sullivan County Catskills wearing our label on our sleeve. I mean, of course there's a double entendre there as well. So what is it that you, you're getting at with this one? And then if you're able to give us a little bit of an idea of what your, you're currently working on, uh, that you said will be your upcoming Sure thing. Project, Yeah. I think
3: it was just, um, the idea was to focus on, yeah, the, the graphic that represents the, uh, the show. I had a lot of fun putting it together. It's just, you know, an arm filled with tattoos of great looking, um, small labels. And, uh, and yeah, just, it was, I was, uh, it was fun to explore all the labels and how they were trying to just sell, 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 but then also, You could see the trend of the artist uh, dictating uh, everything about the record. And Mm -hmm. that meant that they had their own vanity label, that they had their own uh, wants. And there were people like Mickey Gilly, huge successful um, country star and entrepreneur in the uh, 70s and 80s. And he chose to promote uh, stuff to sell, like with his name on it, like uh, suspenders, beer clocks, uh, beer can clocks, mm-hmm. an actual, uh, mechanical bull. And he just had a, an order, uh, you know, you could just order it from him, uh, somewhere in Texas. So there, that was, that's <laughs> not, you honesty. just have bet's your all.
2: mechanical bull arrive.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, it was very expensive to ship, but, uh, I'm sure.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that actually, uh, you know, in the, in the albums I had. Uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> no. if I I missed it or they just weren't on those. Mickey sleeves. Healy
3: was not in your collection, obviously.
2: Yes, so I, obviously no. not, but I am. Y- y- you know the the graphics that you described of of the labels. You know, like are are in and of themselves. Of course, they are art. You know, so I'm um, I'm looking here on your site. You know, you've got RCA and Acer and Bolt and Storyville and Soul City and you know very very specific images uh, and graphic design behind them of course and so you're Mm -hmm. really bringing our attention to that
3: and I just wanted to say uh, a quick thank you to Crystal Grow the curator at the galleries at the Union at uh, Narrowsburg and just to point out my good friend Andy Sumter show poster art artist from the 80s he's featured in that show. I think it's a great exhibit.
2: What what um what are you working on right now?
3: Ah, so yes, to follow. So the next uh idea, there there's two. There's um uh so the idea of the interactive album. Uh, it 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 cuts uh several different ways, but in my mind it would be a fun uh gallery show and, and they are various there's there are actual record Albums, the 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 covers that our artists produce that you could turn into something like you could cut, paste, and turn it into a uh, a truck. You could turn it into uh, like Alice Cooper's Schools Out becomes a desk. Um, so there's these other there's these oh what know, are
2: some other examples?
3: Um, the uh, George Jones had an album that you could construct into his tour bus. Um, uh, there's a couple of others that I'm failing, but so there, there was that aspect. And then I was like, well, there's also albums that you had to go and cut out from the back of cereal boxes that were 45s in the 70s and the 60s. And um, those vinyl inserts of magazines that uh, one had to cut out to play on your record player. So there was that aspect. And then there was also uh, the actual content where. There were albums that would be released that would be minus a part, like a jazz trio, and as a saxophonist you could play along, or there were series of um, records featuring artists doing one side of a dialogue that could have been like a murder mystery, and there were these albums In the 70s and 80s, that would go out to DJs and it would be written questions and the actor or the director or the musician talking about their film or their album, um, giving the answer. And so those are those are bizarre uh, now to think of, uh, but they're completely interactive. And that's
2: fascinating. Yeah.
3: The the other uh, element of interactive was uh, some musicians would make uh, samples like like Dewey Redmond recorded several albums of these one minute, 30 second uh, uh, saxophone solos. And you could, and I, and I have them and you could see where they were scratched, where they were used. And there's all those, all those records that were used by DJs that are all scratched. They're like grooved artifacts. So it's all over the place right now, but I'm hoping to feature some some of all that.
2: Oh, that sounds incredible. How many albums do you have?
3: I, uh, I'm looking at most of them now. I'm not sure. Um,
2: what do you? Come on, give us an idea.
3: It's not that many, really. Uh, really, I've had to move around a bit, and uh, there's been times when I've, uh, I've, you know, ha- I've been more flush, so I, I could purchase certain items. But um, a couple thousand, at
2: least, probably a couple thousand. And at, when did this begin for you? When did this emerge? This idea of of the Portable Gallery, of the Record Museum.
3: It uh, began, I, well, I started thinking about it probably about eight years ago, and um, okay. and uh, I, I have other interests, so there would be this cue in my head when, <laughs> when to do something next, and it just finally moved up, because there was, uh, you know, there was, I uh, had the time, and uh it, During COVID, it seemed like a perfect time to just be by myself and work on this and then offer this up as someone to, as something that someone could explore on their own without, uh, you know, being on their own and, um, and, uh, and being portable and being, being able to, you know, go with the flow. It could be indoors, could be outdoors. Right.
2: Yeah. So, and so. There's been this journey with vinyl, with the record, of course. Like you were saying, people were just dumping them. Um, I think you said in the late 90s. I lost track when that happened. And all of a sudden, I guess at that point it was the CD, right? And then, and. Yes. Yeah. That,
3: and uh, MP3s, I think were, are, you know, uh, I think it was still a couple years away from. Um,
2: right. Napster. A couple, right. Like a couple years away from that. And yet, so what do you make of the fact that? LPs are back you know that they they actually are so popular both for the historic reasons and the collecting reasons but also for artists that are releasing vinyl
3: now you know I mean it's 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 great that there is interest in because there is a there is a warm sound tone when you listen to a record that that is produced a certain way and or and and through the needle and so that is special. some things that just get a digital remastering and put on vinyl uh it, it's not the same and I guess some of these releases that people make they're used to now putting out eighty plus minute albums, so that means four discs of four vinyl discs, so that gets expensive so i, I it's it's a mixed bag i think i think there's mm-hmm. there's a reason to have it it's maybe very expensive and during um the recent time i know. A lot of uh, independents were having trouble uh, producing records because they couldn't get the vinyl. And, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a mixed bag. I'm glad that people are interested and there's, uh, and it actually helps, uh, draw interest to the museum because, uh, it's, it's something that they like and are into. And maybe weren't aware that that piece of paper actually used to promote. Yes. How to use your needle or. You know.
0: <laughs>
2: Oh my goodness. I, you're really bringing back memories for me. <laughs> my obsession with going to the stores to pick out just yeah. exactly the right needle and the cleaner. And I mean, all kinds of things. So we're, we're coming close to the end. And I just wonder if there's anything else you want to share with us, John.
3: Uh, I, uh, I, 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 uh, I just feel like I, uh, it was a, uh, it was something that I envisioned uh, just doing in the city but then I was able to do elsewhere um, during the pandemic, and it's something that I hope to do. Maybe uh, get on the road with my own trailer and uh, and feature the uh, the art and the history of the uh, the record.
2: Well, I and... love this, John. We can we can partner up.
0: Yes, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that'll be perfect. Well, uh, it's just so wonderful to speak with you and you've brought my awareness to things I wasn't even thinking about when I think about records and vinyl. And, uh, I just, uh, am so happy that you were able to join me in talking about your project, the record museum, which is a celebration of the record album and the different aspects of that. Uh, I want to encourage people to visit the recordmuseum.com to find out more about your project. And if you're fortunate enough to be in and around the Sullivan County, New York Catskills, you're able to go to John's show, Wearing Our Label on Our Sleeve, An Incomplete History of Record Promotion. And that is at the galleries at the Narrowsburg Union in Narrowsburg, New York. And it runs through March 19th. And it's just been great to speak with John about his concept, a museum in a box, a portable gallery, 25 LPs, but really diving deep into different aspects of this object that we call an LP or a record. So thank thank you so much, John.
3: I appreciate it so much, Sabrina. Thank you.
2: You're very welcome. I've been speaking with John Philip Hamilton.
0: From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Support comes from Restorative Management, a new treatment provider of outpatient substance abuse services, now in Monticello, serving Sullivan County. Are you or a family member impacted by drugs or alcohol? Information and assistance at 845-250-1115 or restorativemanagement.com. From The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, thecooperageproject.org, And from listeners like you. I'm Daryl Brogdon. We're at the Underground Martini Bunker again to hear the music that's always shaken, not stirred. We're here with the Retro Cocktail Hour every week on WJFF Radio Catskill in Jeffersonville, New York. And you are most welcome to join us. Wednesday night at 8. On Radio Catskill.
3: WJFF Jeffersonville. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Support comes from The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville. Featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille. <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Retro Cocktail Hour.